Yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to kind of just uh, kick it off. We're going to do uh, something a little bit more informal. I was talking to Nathan. I don't even know if we're going to um, end up releasing uh, the episode tonight. We'll see kind of how it flows and fits. So, um, yeah. So what are, um, what are your thoughts so far going back and, and rereading it? Well, I thought you made a great point on the episode about like how long it, it really is. You read your thinking. It's like, oh, well, they just left a week after, you know, uh, Gandalf tells them at first, hey, this drink, don't do it in the fire, don't do anything. Uh, just make sure you have all your plans ready. And then you find out, oh, it was like 10 years later or something like that. You're like, oh, that's a long time. <laughs> it's, yeah, it seems like it's a matter of days or at most a week initially in the uh in the movie you know because he goes and we have the montage but there's there's nothing that suggests a passage of time like yeah. to that extent mm-hmm. yeah absolutely so what's been your uh what's been your favorite part so far you know i think again i'm uh, just like you know how much detail he he, he he draws into just like the life of the hobbits and how they you know they really weren't supposed to really be this main character, even in Sauron's eyes, you know, you hear that about the whole world. He hasn't known about who, you know, the hobbits were and Bilbo. And then now that he has this ring, now he's finally been drawing his attention to the Shire and all their world is pretty much to be upside down. And I was like, yeah, I mean, it really is. It's a kiss from the most unlikeliest of heroes. Yeah. Story. Yep. What's up, Kyle? Hey Kyle, how's it going, man? Fantastic. How are y'all? Doing well. Doing well. Good. I was Maybe. just saying, man, I'm uh, behind on my Lord of the Rings trilogy, like trivia. I haven't watched Lord of the Rings in forever. <laughs> That's all right. We're all in uh, in different phases of it, so it'll be good. Um, I mean, Came out, I probably did like half a dozen times on each extended version, but you know. <laughs> I think that's probably the movie I saw the most times in the theater, the original Fellowship of the Ring. And oh, it was really? one of those deals. It wasn't, I mean, it was a great movie, but it wasn't necessarily because, oh, I've, you know, uh, I've got to see it a ton of times. But the very first time uh, I was in college and there's a, a bunch of guys had friends who were like threading up the, the reel the first night before it actually released. That was back before the movies came out at midnight. So we went up and did that. And then the next day everyone was like, want to go again? Want to go again? I'm like, this movie's three <laughs> hours long, man. <laughs> you want to go again? <laughs> oh, too funny. Yeah, I think actually the first movie that I did that with was Avengers. I don't think uh, I think Lord of the Rings. It was one of those things because it came out when uh, when we were on Christmas break. Yeah. So I went and saw it. I think a couple times, and then you know the the next movie that kind of came out that had a real pull to it was uh, was Avengers. I think I saw that like four or five times in theaters. But it was the same thing. People were like, "Hey, have you seen this yet?" Yeah, I've seen it, but I'll go see it again. Yes, yeah, so you end up watching it, and I think what happened with. Fellowship of the Ring is when it, uh, Nathan and I might have been talking to this a little bit. Last, what happened that came out the first time is there weren't any real fantasy movies hadn't come out for years. So the people who like were fans of fantasy movies went to see it, but everyone else was like this nerd stuff. It took them like a while to get. I remember convincing a lot of people, and like I gave them the book and like read the book, and then suddenly they were like, "Let's go see the movie." No, let's go see it again. I'm like, okay, <laughs> yeah, 
For real. But the, see, that's that's what's interesting. I want to ask. I wanted to ask this to you guys. Is that like when Lord of the Rings came out? It was like a super cultural moment because it was like the first mainstream, like big fantasy series that was so successful and so popular. And they're getting to come out ready to come out with this Amazon series. And you know, since since Lord of the Rings, we've had all you know, we've had Game of Thrones, we've had Chronicles of Narnia, and all these other series and movies and all. Is this next Lord of the Rings series going to be as impactful as like the first trilogy? Especially since it's characters we don't know and everything. Yeah, I see. I don't know. I think I think it depends on where they go with the story. I think if they try to do something like what Star Wars did with the Mandalorian, where we're getting a whole different saga that's unknown to us, I would say probably not. I think you're just going to end up annoying a lot of fans. Um, But I think if they look into the Silmarillion and they start to pull some characters and try to pull some history and adapt from that, I think, I think they could then retain the essence of, of what was done. But I think, I think just trying to go in a different direction and say, Hey, we're just going to come up with a new story and we're going to put Lord of the Rings on it. uh, They're going to have a mess on their hands. Thrones, but we call it Lord of the Rings. Well, right. yeah, and I think that's the like the question about is it going to be as impactful? I don't really see how it could unless they make it completely different. Unless they they really try to make it more like Tolkien's book, so there's like ten breakfasts and multiple <laughs> musical numbers, which people may not. It might be groundbreaking in the wrong way because <laughs> because love it or hate it. I think the I think that probably Game of Thrones was the impactful moment on television for yeah. this to prove that this kind mm-hmm. of fantasy thing could fly. And yeah. and my concern would be that they end up doing what a lot of TV shows, I don't think the Mandalorian's guilty of this, but what a lot of the shows have done, which is try to cater to the edginess of Game of Thrones. You know, that every yeah. fantasy series that comes on television or comes on Netflix or wherever has to have this level of edge to it. Um, and even that, that edge even sort of infected, like some of the early, like when they did Star Trek discovery, it's like, I don't need right. my Star Trek to be dark, this dark. I don't want twilight zone to be like black mirror, you know? So I don't, I think if they go that route with Lord of the Rings, that's a complete mistake, uh, just mm-hmm. because of the kind of tone and the kind of material that it is. I don't know. I don't see how it could be as impactful unless they really tried to make it like like some kind of weird fantasy history series, you know, like they almost tried to take a historical fiction bent with it, which would be in keeping with Tolkien. But I just don't know. I like my interest has waned a little bit with because for one thing, I don't know about you guys, I'll I'll defer to the, your other three in this. One of the things about the fellowship of the ring for me now, some of the people who had never seen it were seeing it for the first time. Like this is the first time they encountered the story, but was wanting to see the Shire and wanting to see Gandalf and all of these characters realized I had no, I didn't just want to see a random fantasy story. Yes. We hadn't had one in a while, but it wasn't like I wanted to see that. I wanted to specifically see this fantasy world that was brought to life with these characters. I knew to me, the best parts, I think fellowship is the best movie, not because it has the most action, but because it lingers so long in that world that Mm. you feel like you are a part of it. By the time two towers in, Return of the King are happening. Oh, I, I was just like, slow down just a little bit, guys. I just want to see a little bit more of what's going on. The battles are cool, but, you know, can't we hang out a little bit of more Gondor when it's not getting sacked or something like that? And that's hard because, I mean, that's the nature of the books, but our nature of the movies. But the I, I, don't, I don't see why I, 
I have hope to be surprised, much like the Mandalorian, but I don't see how it will be kind of like what you're saying. I don't see how it could be groundbreaking unless they really pull out the stops. They're going to have to deliver something really special that that I would have to say probably either demonstrates that they can do the drama thing the way Game of Thrones did for a for I don't say a family, but more of a general audience. Mm-hmm. That's about the only way I could see it being uh, as as effective. I think they're going to go more for like Marvel, but Lord of the Rings style, like that level of like humor, comedy, like all age groups type of thing. Um, but Lord of the Rings. Yeah. What do you think, Jared? What do you think? I, I, I think they could do something pretty similar. I mean, I've heard, aren't they supposed to be doing the Sumerian supposedly? Like I think the guns are right to that, but um, well, I don't think that the Tolkien uh, state has released the rights to the Silmarillion. I think what they've done is they've they've kind of given up the the time frame and said, "Hey, this is this is the time frame where this is going to take place." But I don't know that they've actually given up the rights to the Silmarillion in order to allow that to to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. See, that that could be an issue. I mean, I mean. Since they're having the Game of Thrones writers on there, it kind of makes me reticent. I really hope that they don't try to make it over-sexualized or over, you know, try to make it like the next Game of Thrones. Because I don't mm-hmm. think even the, you know, limited family of Tolkien would appreciate that very much. So, I mean, yeah. And um, also, um, so I kind of read the books after I watched the movies. So, mm-hmm. I... But to me, and I saw it with my dad when I was very young, and we both kind of thought that the Fellowship was probably like the, the the worst movie out of the three, because mm-hmm. again, you're so long and set everything up, which I understand it's a world building movie, but it almost seems like it almost takes too long to build that world, and then you know when it's three hours long, you're like, okay, let's let's get somewhere, show me, and so that that's my thoughts on it. That's just yeah, that's it's a tedious movie, but. You know, I understand why it is. Yeah, the one thing that I would be interested for them to do in the in the series um, is, I think you could take some of the stories and expand on the universe. Like I said, I mean, the the thing about the Silmarillion is that most of the things that are mentioned and touched upon are found in pieces in the Lord of the Rings. And so they could draw from that source material, but you have, you know, you have things that would be, I think really fascinating to see like the fall of Numenor to see, okay, where did Aragorn's uh, lineage come from and what was it like there? And, you know, that's where Sauron actually loses his body and he can never take his, his, you know, the shape where he could appeal to people again, you know, that's where he becomes the dark Lord. And so I think there's a lot of things that they could do with it. It's just, you know, like you guys are saying, are we going to find ourselves with, you know, Avengers in middle earth, or are we going to find ourselves with game of Thrones in middle earth? Or (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think another thing is right now, they're going to hire people that did something very similar, right? Like you're talking, okay, Game mm-hmm. of Thrones writers are going to bring these people in. And we were mentioning this last time on the podcast that one of the things that you kind of forget about Fellowship of the Ring is that it basically is a adventure story that isn't trying to be a fantasy because fantasy is a genre that what we think of as high fantasy doesn't exactly exist. 
Like it mm-hmm. sort of does, but you mostly you either got fairy tales or things like that. So you have Tolkien putting together something because he's a passion for kind of something else, right? Like he has a passion for language. He's a passion for world building, but he's not necessarily, I love dragons and elves and things like that. Yeah. He, he, he likes history and mythology and he brings those together. Then we have Peter Jackson who only had made like splattery horror films <laughs> at the point when he picks up Fellowship of the Ring. Well, that, and there was a, a like a true crime movie he did called Heavenly Creatures. He made a lot That's of right. weird little New Zealand movies. They're all pretty good if you enjoy that kind of thing, which I do. But like the, the thing is he wasn't the guy that on paper you would say, let's direct this uh, fantasy series that we want to aim at families and open big. I mean, he did a whole movie with Muppets that had like syphilis and were murdering each other and, you know, <laughs> smoking drugs and stuff. So, I mean, on paper, but the thing is, I guess my point is they picked someone who had a passion for the material that was coming from outside their, their wheelhouse. They were bringing a lot of other things with them. They were creative and interesting, but they weren't necessarily we, – he, he wasn't hired because he had just made Dragonheart or something like that, right? Like yeah. he wasn't making some sort of fantasy movie. And I think when you look at like you know George Lucas, uh, just this past weekend I showed my kids um, – uh, American graffiti, right? Like yeah. the things that George Lucas did prior to star Wars, he did a sci-fi movie, but it was more of a dystopian kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And THX one, one, three, eight. But like, I think that's the thing is nowadays we don't seem to go for the person who's, uh, interesting because they're creative and come up with new ideas. We want someone who we've proven they can do the thing we want them to do. Very rarely does that result in, I think something astonishing. It might be good. It might work, but I would almost be interested in see them pick somebody that's more a little bit of a, not a wild card, but someone that proved, Hey, I have a passion. I really want to tell this part of the Lord of the Rings story. The problem is right. What I see on paper right now is they're like game of Thrones did great. Lord of the Rings is something people like, let's make a, let's make something. Yeah. There's a lot of competition in the field now than when the original Lord of the Rings movies came out, like there's, you know, the Witcher series, you know, Netflix is doing live action Chronicles of Narnia series. Amazon has the rights to game, uh, to the wheel of time. Um, you know, tons of stuff that's coming out. Like even just in mainstream movies and stuff, you've got like the avatar, four films that are coming oh out of and they've been coming out for the past 10 years supposedly let me ever see that i'm not in a hurry either but i mean billion dollars for four movies oh yeah i mean i had fun at the first one but i wasn't one i was really clamoring for a sequel <laughs> but um, that's what like the those it's kind of like the same crowd the people who go see avatar kind of like similar people will go see you know lord of the rings tv series or the witcher tv series and all and so there's a lot more competition in the marketplace. And I think there's people are more, they're not just like, I'll take this because it's the only thing here. Like this is the only, you know, big, you know, movie of the scale in the fantasy era. Now they're more like a sophisticated, more of a sophisticated audience. You know what I yeah, mean? Peter Jackson already learned that. <laughs> Yeah, he came back, and actually, that's a good point because you look at Peter Jackson. He comes back and he does the Hobbit after he does these three movies, and all of the things that he was that he had learned from his little horror movies and how to to make things economical and and you know keep the story moving. He lost somewhere between there and when he got to the Hobbit, and now he was just a guy who had made a popular fantasy series before, and it kind of blew up on. I mean, I'm I I've seen those movies. I'm not a huge fan of them. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. What are your yeah. thoughts on uh, the transition, Jared, between uh, his role in Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit? Have you seen The Hobbit series? Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I, I saw, like, I mean, so I thought the first two were great. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, not great, but okay. And this is where The Hobbit, boy, you, you did what you had to do. But the third one's just so unnecessary. It's like one big fallacy, and you're like, I paid like seven bucks to rent that. I'm like, well, this was a waste of seven bucks because what what purpose did it serve? It didn't move anything. Versus, I mean, you're right, and what he did with Lord of the Rings, it was, you know, he served the story well. He learned how, like, you know, move the story along, albeit, like, at some peril. But, yeah, I mean, it was just like, it almost came off, like, as a cash grab after Lord of the Rings. It's like, okay. Let's split it into, let's take this one book, split it into three books, and... That was, yeah, I kind of, I know that originally before Jackson had come back to it, several different people had tried to do it. And then uh, Mm -hmm. Del Toro had been assigned at one point. And I would have been very interested to see what he would have done with one single movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, and, and I feel, I feel that you could do the Hobbit in one movie. I don't think that would have been an issue at all. But even if you were going to say, okay, we're going to split it into two, I think would have been, you know, a, a better, it, it would have served the story better than if you were going to try to say, okay, let's take the Hobbit and let's divide it into these three parts. You realize by the end of the, uh, the three hours in the Hobbit that, wait a minute, I'm only here. Um, you know, you, you're basically, um, I think you're about halfway through the book at that point, And then you get to, and then it's like, wait, we still have two more movies in this. How are we going to do that? Um, where, you know, I feel like, and I do, I feel like the Hobbit, the first one was actually a very, was actually done very well. I feel like when I read through the book that the Hobbit in the book, um, the Hobbit, the movie, they line up really well up until that point. And then you get to the second one and you're like, all right, we're starting to deviate. And by the end of the second one, you're like, wait, we're just throwing characters in here who've never been in here and scenes. Right. Then you get to the, you get to the third one and you're like, wait, you could have resolved this story in 10 minutes. And and he runs into something that's very strange, which is that despite all of the, like three movies he's got, some things still get very short shrift. Like, why does the character Bjorn get so few lines and sequences when there are now three movies to account for him and they still crowd him out? The guy who could shape shift into a bear, like he's yeah. barely in that series. <laughs> it's just astonishing to me that that's we out of time. I don't know. What yeah. gonna, <laughs> right. The guy that was in the original book can't fit because <laughs> we had to invent these other new kids. Right. We needed to have some elf hobbit or health dwarf romance and <laughs> does that rock'em sock'em's robot scene in the first one where the two like mountains are throwing boulders at each other or something yeah uh, i think the benefit that this tv series has though is that it doesn't have to be like directly profitable because it's coming out under amazon like it's not hbo hbo is very tied to like people signing up you get a small portion of people signing up for Amazon just because of Lord of the Rings. 
then those people are ordering off their website and they're getting money in other ways. And so it doesn't have to be as the demands on the series aren't as great as they would if they were coming out under HBO or a traditional TV network. Yeah. uh, And that's a good point. That's kind of what we've seen some of these others do where it's like, let's commit hella an interesting story and let's do what we're going to do and we'll see how everyone responds to it. Um, To some degree, I feel like that's kind of what they did with Picard with CBS. It's like, okay, we're just going to, we'll, we'll put it out there. We'll go for it. But I don't necessarily know that there were so many hands in the pot that they were, you know, they were micromanaged to a, a great degree with it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to interject for a second here um, because we're getting more people on. Let's go ahead. And um, if you're not talking, just mute your mics. So that way um, we don't get some, some background noise and things like that. And then when you want to talk, just unmute your mic. Um, tricks of the trade, you know, Chip, I know you've been doing the online teaching thing for several weeks now too. So I'm sure you, uh, you get it. So, yeah. Um, and then to get Chip caught up on, on what we were talking about, obviously uh, we, we kind of started with fellowship and then we, we uh, digressed into <laughs> Amazon and in uh, the Hobbit. So um, Chip, you just recently went through and reread uh, the fellowship, right? What were your uh, what were your thoughts on? Ah, okay, thanks. As long as you've got it, uh, thoughts on a uh, couple of things resounded to me. I hadn't read it in quite a number of years, probably eighteen or twenty years. And the first thing I thought after I got back into it again was just how well written the story is. Um, he did not waste words, even though it's a fifteen hundred page tome, uh, with the first one being what about four hundred in the version I have. Um, I didn't feel like many words were wasted. Uh, the characters are introduced in a way that you get to uh, know them almost immediately in some form or fashion. And then the uh, characters are well drawn as you go through the story. Um, so that was my initial thought on the book. And, and interestingly, about how timely it is. <laughs> um, it hasn't gotten old at all. Uh, it's aged well. It's, a, it's earned its status as a classic. I know some have listed it as the... Uh, best book of the 1900s kind of hard to dispute that but i'm sure that could be another long discussion but then um in we also rewatched the uh the movie last week uh, we watch them annually my wife and i together that's uh we stretch it out and we, we have wrapped in the hobbit <laughs> but we can talk about that again but uh just at really how well i thought the uh the movie and you guys talked about it in your podcast last week uh really did a fine job at at, at setting the tone for their characters. The overall tone of the story I felt was, was captured quite well in the movie. Always did. I mean, I remember watching it the first time and uh, in the theater over at White Marsh, actually. And, um, you know, you're watching the introduction come up on screen and how they introduce it and they go through the, um, the poem. And then you hear Gollum say my prices. And as soon as I heard that vocalization, I thought, I think Jackson got it because <laughs> that was a very similar to the voice I had in my head. The downside, which is mixed now, I'm also into um, the two towers um, as well, rereading that. Um, the downside is all the voices I hear now are the movies. Uh, so I, I've lost that wonder of the first time you read it when you build your own characters. That said, I felt the characterizations were so good. 
I've gotten where I don't mind that. <laughs> Gandalf speaks, I hear him McKellen. Uh, Frodo is, is um, Elvin Wood. So it works, it, it, Elijah Wood. Uh, it's, it's worked well overall. So the two I thought fit together right well. Obviously stuff is left out. Uh, I think you talked in the podcast about uh, um, Bombadil, Tom Bombadil. Uh, that would have been a fun character to see on screen. And my guess is they'll cover that well in the Amazon series when that's ready to go. And I appreciated the thoughts somebody brought out about that. Um, you know, looking forward to that as well. So those are in brief what I what I captured in the rereading of it. Nice, nice. Let me ask uh, uh, Kyle and and Jared. Um, based on what you guys remember, what were what were some of the impressions you had from what you remember from the book of things that you were excited about seeing on screen versus things that. Uh, you were like, man, I wish they hadn't done that and maybe they should have put that in instead or done that differently. What are your thoughts on that? Jared, let's go ahead and start with you and then we'll bump it to Kyle. Um, like, uh, I think, uh, you know, the, the way you first see Aragorn, especially when you see Aragorn in the books, so like, okay, this is a very interesting character. And just see how uh, Jackson takes him and he's first met the Prancing Pony and he's just this almost like this green arrow like character where he's just all hooded and like, okay, I don't know anyone. I don't want you to know me. I'm just here. And then to see what he grows into at the end of the book. And then, um, Rivendell, like the end of the very end to see the whole city and just how majestic and just how the elves live. And then you see Bilbo and you're like, Oh, Hey, there's Bilbo. But yeah, I, those are things I was excited to see. Um, like I said, they buy the extended edition, so I can't really think of much more they could have added. <laughs> but yeah, those are my two cents. Um, I think for me, I so complete honesty, I'm not one of those people who's read the book series like a hundred times. I've read it once, one time. And when I actually read the books, I got to the end and I was I was just kind of ready for the series to be done. And so like I was like, all right, they won the war. And it, you know, I was, I like just stopped reading. And they were like, I don't know, a hundred pages left. And the movies came out and the last return of the King came out. And my buddy goes, yeah, but I hate that they left out the part where they go back to the Shire and Sauron's there and he's taken over. I was like, what that happened? This is what I get for not reading the last 50 pages of the book. And so I had to go back like, you know, five years after I'd read it and go back and read it and be like, Oh man, that was great. Like this is why you always read to the end. But, uh, you know, I, they gave three books to, uh, to the Hobbit, but they couldn't finish that part in, but <laughs> I don't know how they would have returned to the King was almost four hours at that point. So I like that. But I think the big thing was, uh, they hit it like right from the gecko Like Shire was exactly as I pictured it. Hobbits like were exactly as I pictured it. Like it was just, you stepped into it and it was like you were in that world. And it was like, that was exactly as I pictured other stuff, you know, Oh, maybe they did this differently or I kind of had it differently, but Shire I thought was spot on. Oh, you got to mute yourself, Nathan. I do this at work all the time. And like, Nathan, what are your thoughts? Like, I just gave them to you, but you missed it. Uh, So, yeah, it had that sensibility, too, that I think feel like older movies had. Uh, When I say older, I'm thinking like Ben-Hur, Lawrence of Arabia, some of these big movies where 
even in 2001, special effects aren't where they are now. But even when the special effects were not necessarily 100% up the snuff, like, for example, that scene when they're in the mines of Moria and you see Moria and it's just basically it's a digital matte painting, right? Uh, and when the goblins come up out of the ground, they still don't like, you know, they're clearly like an army of CGI little people popping out of the ground. But the, the scale of it and the fact that Jackson keeps going back to scenes of people in actual armor and the and the or the goblins and the orcs are right there that it still works. That's still such a great action scene. I watched it a couple nights ago and it's that, you know, does it look real? No, but I appreciate that Jackson was willing to do things like that scene where they're on the bridge looks like they're standing on a small model. I, to this day, I, I watched a Ray Harryhausen movie with my kids the other day with the stop motion, like dragon and the stop motion Cyclops. I would watch stop motion in movies if they took and put the level of character and detail in and I think that's what set those first few Lord of the Rings movies apart. By the time you got to The Hobbit, Jackson was doing stuff that looked like it belonged in a video game with Legolas running along. It looked like Mario Brothers and stuff. And it just sure. there was an integrity to the images and stuff in there. And people have been painting Lord of the Rings for years, right? Like images and probably everybody's painted it in their mind what it looks like. So I like that he was deferring and he got some of the artists like Greg Hildebrand, some of these other guys, to actually uh, – do these illustrations and so that first scene jared mentioned the scene where uh aragorn is smoking his pipe there at the in the um end of the prancing pony and the embers light up his eyes you know you could easily see that as an illustration and i think that they took the time to slow down and do all of that like so many things now aren't shots they're just here's a even the cgi armies and stuff in the very beginning of the movie are very well done uh, and I, so I would like – if they do something like that with the Amazon series, I, I'd very much be interested in it if they keep that same level of, of artistry to it. But again, you have to have someone who's passionate about Tolkien, not just passionate about making a fantasy story, I think. Right. Yeah, and, yeah. and to your point, Nathan, too, I think one of the great things that uh, – that, Jackson did in the first one, the fellowship was that he didn't always uh, build up and use the CGI armies. You know, you go to the very end when they're, you know, on Amon Hen and you have the army coming in uh, to, to try to grab Frodo, you know, that's, you're, you're not getting all the CGI from that. You know, you're getting the people coming in right after the other, um, and, and he's using that shot in that scene very well, you know, it just, it's kind of that throwback to star Wars before, you know, Lucas was like, Hey, let's, uh, let's set up the clone army and just make it all digital. Um, you know, you're, you're dealing with, okay, we're actually going to use people and we're going to map this out and make sure that we are able to shoot this in such a way that it feels like you're looking at this grand army, um, and, and to me, that was one of the, the things about Jackson was he was still new enough coming in that he had something to prove. And then by the time he got to The Hobbit, it was like, eh, I don't have anything to prove now. And he didn't. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, it was, they'll give me the money for special effects. I can get away with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so we I, talked I, to, I think you're right. What were you going to say? Sorry. Nope, go ahead. I think it was a similar lesson that they learned in Star Wars. I think that was an apt comparison. They went back to the prequels and they did all this digital stuff and they're like, 
wasn't as great. And so then when they came back to do the, the sequel trilogy, they kind of tried to go back to a lot more of the animatronics and like just as much live action as possible. And so I hope they learn the same lesson with the TV series and that they keep it as much live action as possible. You know, we, we don't see these video, the, like the scene of them going down the river, jumping from barrel to barrel, just like, Oh, that killed me. I, I couldn't stand that one <laughs> just because it was just the, the suspension of disbelief was too high for me. And that, I mean, we're in a fantasy world, but I still got to believe that they can jump from barrel to barrel on a moving river. Uh, and then yeah. jump out and then back in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and I think too, you know, and I'm wondering if, if Jackson went more for that kind of silly tone to, to bring kids in a little bit more, you know, I mean, it was still, it was still PG 13, but you know, I feel like I'm watching that and I'm like, you know, monkeys in a barrel or whatever, just seeing them, you know, going through and going down, you know, it, it had, it had more of that silly young child vibe to it than it did uh, anything, you know, that you would see in Tolkien's world, you know? And I think, I think that's the great thing about what Tolkien did in building his world is, is while it's fantastical, you know, that there's something deeper going on behind it that, you know, you still feel the danger for these characters. You feel like, you know, they could lose their life at any moment. Aragorn might be, you know, the, the chosen one to reclaim Gondor, but his life is still isn't safe, you know, and you feel that danger all the way through to the end. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things The Hobbit, the problems with splitting into three stories is then you have to, and this is maybe the same challenge with the Amazon series, is then you have to come up with motivations and uh, character development for characters that maybe were only mentioned like they'd be mentioned in a fairy tale, right? Like a lot of that happens in the Silmarillion or a historical footnote. And if you're basing that off of a historical character, then you're good. Here, in this case, the problem comes in, are we going to have writers that are just going to write kind of cliches, you know, which is what happened with The mm-hmm. Hobbit, right? One of the things that's interesting about The Fellowship of the Ring is that most of the characters in The Fellowship of the Ring don't want to be doing the thing they're doing, uh, meaning that everybody wants, you know, Aragorn's conflicted. He doesn't feel good in the beginning about being the king or having this legacy. Uh, he's not as conflicted in the book as he is in the, in the, the film, but there's still this idea that everyone is sort of just doing what they have to do because of the situation they're in. They grow into the people that they are through being put through this situation. Uh, so none of them necessarily has like a big, particularly in the books, this big arc that might have to do with lost love or, you know, there's some of that, but a lot of that's been concocted even for the movies. So one of the things I think so strong about Tolkien's book is these people are relatable. They all have varying things going on with them. And a lot of times it doesn't have anything to do with, well, they look down on me in the Shire, you know, like I feel like now Frodo would have to be bullied or something or, you know, uh, some kind of thing that he can overcome other than just overcoming this Lord of the Rings. Yes, right, exactly. But you see that kind of thing done in other and, – and, and even a little bit of that does start to happen in The Hobbit because you've got these whole characters. Do we need this elf-dwarf romance that happens? And, and I'm not opposed to that, but it was handled in the most cliche sort of way, right? Like the there was no real emphasis given to these characters. And I think that's one of the, the, the powerful things about the book is that there's a richness to every character, including Gollum. 
including these characters who come in for for a little bit and then disappear. Tom Bombadil, I would be interested actually in seeing if they do bring him in the way you're suggesting, right? Because I think that would be cool. I don't know if they have the ability to do it the right way because I think it's such a it's kind of such a light character that I wonder if they would know how to handle it. I don't think they understand. It's not a light character, but the way the character is presented is very jovial. He's from a different era completely. I just don't know that. I mean, look at Radagast the Brown. Like, I almost feel like that's they in, in even trying to get close to that, you know, I, that was almost a little embarrassing, you know, um, which is kind of a shame because that actor who for a short period of time played Doctor Who in the 80s, I think he's a good actor. It just they didn't I don't think they knew what they were doing there. Yeah, and I think I think that's kind of true of of many of the characters that they took from, you know, from the Hobbit at least, you know, is is I, I feel like Lord of the Rings, one of the things that, that really can't be doubted is is the heart and essence of the book found its way into the movie with the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy is you see um, you know, like you were saying, Chip, those you picture those characters in your head. Now you see those voices because um, regardless of how we pictured them before, they did such a good job at bringing those characters to life. And I think, I think one of the things that uh, what you said, Nathan Jackson did was he went back and he studied the paintings. He studied the, the drawings that were made from the books that Tolkien did a lot of that himself. And so we're getting the author's image and, and to, uh, uh, Jackson took a lot of time to preserve some of those things and bring those things into the movie that we saw. And so, you know, we, we can sit here um, and debate, you know, on and off, man, I want to see this character and I want to see this scene. Ultimately I, I have this debate with a good friend of mine, um, where, you know, he, he's just throwing his hands up in the air. Oh, man, they should have done this. And it's like, yeah, we can sit here and we could have said they should have done A, B, C, D, X, Y, Z all we want. But at the end of the day, did the heart of that story come on the screen? And for me, when I look at it, it did. When I look at The Hobbit, um, you know, I think the, the, the bowels came on the screen, you know, from, from that story. It was, there was nothing in there. Um, and, and I do want to be fair because I really did enjoy the first movie of The Hobbit. But where you took it and where it ended up was just a, a disaster. Um, and, and so speaking, speaking of that, um, what would be something that uh, from, from the story you would have loved to have seen made its way? Because I think those things are uh, that that makes you know this type of conversation fun because the things that I'm thinking of and the things that you're thinking of, you know, complete the story. Um, for me, one of the things that I would have enjoyed seeing was uh, Aragorn's character in the movie. I think have a little bit more of that self doubt, where in the book I feel like he questions himself a lot more. The movie made him a much stronger character much more decisive this is where we're going this is what we're doing um where I, where in the book he was just he was more unsure of himself which i think added to when he finally rose up and took up uh the mantle of king and and you know finally claimed his 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 birthright essentially 
Um, so Chip, you mentioned um, Bombadil. Sorry, what would be another uh, uh, scene? That's a good question. Uh, I'm going to try to, to think through that a little more. I wanted to follow up on what you said about Aragorn because you hit that in um, your podcast last week as well. Um, just that, and now being into the two towers, that characterization that you just mentioned is right because he's real quick to lean Gandalf's direction or somebody else's direction if he thinks it's a good idea. Uh, he's a growing leader at the time. He just wants to do the right thing. He's not always sure what it is. And uh, that is an aspect that I think did carry over into the film, that, that aspect of his character. Um, but now I, I, uh, that's a good question. I wish I had uh, skimmed the book again to, to see. I'll let some others jump in and try to, try to come back on that one. And I had a couple other thoughts on The Hobbit I'll get back to later. So, Nathan, uh, jump over to you. What would, what would be a, a scene that you can think of from the, the book that didn't quite make it that you were like, I think this would have been a really fun addition to see in there? I mean, there are a couple. I think the thing is, though, that they did a reasonable job of going through. And I think truncating what they could to me it's less about a major because some of the things they did cut like the barrel whites and things like that it sort of makes sense would i've liked to seen them i would have but after a certain point it is literally meet this character meet this character meet this character to me what i would have liked to see more of and i think i said this on the podcast was uh, a development of the character of saruman and i think that they really hit great thing with all the casting christopher lee's a great casting choice the thing about christopher lee if you've ever seen him in movies um other movies beyond this the star wars and stuff is he often plays the heavy and he can do it almost just by staring at the screen right but but lee had been reading for years narrations of tolkien's books and not just lord of the rings but Silmarillion. i mean he has a great voice for that and he can do mm-hmm. a lot more than play the one note villain which the minute you see Saruman in the movie, he's just glad Christopher Lee is just staring at him. I mean, I think my daughter said, what's wrong with that wizard? You know, I mean, the minute you see him, he's just, he's Christopher Lee and he's got that look, but he was capable. I, I, if there's something I think Jackson kind of flubbed in the, in the, in that series, particularly in the theatricals is he cut, he cut Saruman completely from the third movie to the point that Christopher Lee didn't even have a, uh, a name credit. I mean, they have all their, you know, I think Boromir gets a name credit and he hasn't shown up since the first movie and they can, they take Lee out and he had, he was such a big presence in part two that it did. uh, But, but that aside, I mean, they, they clarify that in the extended versions, but what's still missing is a sense of Saruman as a character that's doing everything he's doing out of two things, which is necessity and fear, which again, makes him more human and underscores Tolkien's point that the, that when we see evil in the real world, it's often done out of necessity and fear, whereas there's a kind of malevolence that's in the, the Lee uh, depiction of Saruman that develops over time. I mean, he doesn't stick Gandalf on top of the tower. He says, oh, you know, he's our honor guest. He, he's trying to seem pragmatic. He's trying to draw him in. He wants, he, he does want Gandalf to join him. He wants to also feel the sort of, like, hey, I was right, you know, and and you were wrong. He also wants to have the affirmation in his own troubled mind that, that hey, this other wizard has joined me too. He just, he's 
you know, they have like a disco fight in the movie, which is cool and all, but I that to me is the one thing I wish there had been a little more nuance dealing with his character. Not because I believe he was a good like that he that he was misrepresented. I just think that some of his nuances were, were things that Lee was up to the challenge of, but that we don't actually see. Yeah, good thought. Um, Kyle, I know you said you only uh, read the book once, um, but is there something that really stuck out to you when you when you read the book, you saw the movie that you were like, wait, I remember that, and that would have been really cool to see and have in there? Um. Nah, I mean, it was it was a long time ago for me having read the books and then having seen the seen the movies and all coming out. Um, yeah, off the off, off the top of my head, I can't think of much. Or how about now favorite? What really blew you away when you saw it, Kyle? Or when you saw it, the movie probably coming to a kind of fresh. What kind of just impressed you or, or blew you away that you didn't quite remember was there, or that the movie had the, kind of shown in a new light? The Oliphants. Oh yeah, they were cool. I mean, seeing that kind of stuff on screen the was just I think what they really, really nailed um in the Lord of the Rings series was just the world building. It was such a complete world. And you see it when you watch the extended versions and you see like the stuff they go into on Weta, uh that like the how much in depth they went on building this world. And I think that really set the standard for a lot of movies and a lot of TV shows to come. Like this is where you're at. If you're going to build a world, we're not just going to accept this little cheap thing. And you know, it's a fantasy series. And so everybody's got like, Oh, they look like they made that wool from like, picked it off from Walmart or something. You know what I mean? Like spirit gum and the beard is coming off. Right. Everything just looked, it, it was just really seamless. And, um, it blended together. And you already mentioned how in The Hobbit it didn't as much. It was a lot more the CGI stood out. Even though we should have had like this better CGI at that point, it, it, it just stood out like a sore, sore thumb. It wasn't as seamless. That's what they did in the first three movies. And so I really enjoyed just seeing what you saw in the books come to life. And like Gollum, I think... I was like, man, how are they going to put that character on screen? You know, Gollum is such an iconic character in fantasy. Like, people who don't even, like, read fantasy know who Gollum is. You can say, my precious, and they know you're talking about Lord of the Rings, you know. And so that, I, I really love seeing Gollum on screen, and I, there's no end of memes. And I think for years, my friends and I were always, like, my precious jokes and Gollum jokes. and. <laughs> The cultural moment and uh, Andy Serkis, I think, is going to play every live motion picture, uh, motion capture character on the screen from now on. <laughs> He's so good at it. I mean, I, he did King Kong and he did the the Planet of the Apes movies. I thought he, he was great yeah. at that. The thing about Gollum, I want to throw this out there because this is an area where not to sound kind of, I, I mean, you know, Tolkien put all the building work there and he made such an exceptional character, but there are things that Jackson brings into the two towers when he's dealing with Gollum. I think in a way it's not that they're not in the book, but he visualizes and dramatizes them in such a way that make Gollum even a kind of stronger character than he is in the books. Mm -hmm. I feel like you are actually kind of, even though you know where he's going to end up, 
you're kind of really rooting for him to pull it together in the two towers, particularly that scene where he is arguing with himself and just the way he visualizes it, where he goes back and forth and he's coming to the realization that I don't need you anymore. And you know that he's setting him up sort of self for a fall because he's just, now he's relying upon Frodo, you know, before it was the ring, but now Frodo is master. He's going to take care of me. All my eggs are in this basket and you're just watching him not unlike an addict, you're just, you're happy that he's getting out of it, but then you're like, oh, he's going back in. And that stuff's on the page, but I don't think it's as humanized. Uh, You know, like, is he at the end of the two towers? You're like, you know, maybe he can, maybe this will be different. You know, maybe he will, he'll throw it off and he's not going to take him to the spider. But, you know, um, I don't know what your thoughts are, but I do think that that was one area where I was like, wow, this is kind of an improvement. Not an improvement, but maybe like really using all the tools of the cinema to to enhance something. Yeah. Jared, what were your uh, what were your thoughts? What was something that you were uh, you can remember from your reading that you were like, man, I, I really wanted to see more of this and and bring that out and have them brought that out in the movie. How the Brandy Bucks are portrayed. I mean, they're kind of a goofball character. Like you were saying on the podcast, like in the movies, they're just like Laurel and Hardy. Whereas in the book, so far, it seems like, hey, they're his trusted confidant and they're his trusted, you know, best friends. And they're like, hey, okay, you need to go do this. We'll go do this for you. Okay, cover cover up the stuff from the uh, Psycho Bagginses. Okay, versus, you know, it's just, so I would like to have seen that. Um, like what Nate, the other Nathan was saying, the, uh, the slow de- descent into depravity that Saruman has in the books would have been just so enjoyable. Um, but, um, yeah, no, I think, I think that's mainly the one thing I think that hasn't been mentioned is, um, the, uh, the, the, the uh, more personification of the side characters than just, haha, you know, yeah, yeah, good thoughts, definitely. Chip, you were going to bring up something with uh, The Hobbit. What were, what were you wanting to bring up with that? Oh, I was pretty much in agreement with what you were saying earlier. I remember when he was making the movies, uh, however long that was ago now, a few years back, and we heard that the movie was finally coming after all the waiting. I'm like, oh, good, it's about time. And uh, then I heard it was going to be two movies. Like, okay, I can, you know, he did essentially six books in over three movies and with the Lord of the Rings, two would make sense for the Hobbit. There's a lot to work with there. And then when I heard it was three, I thought he's gone George Lucas on us. You know, I've got all this, somebody mentioned earlier about all the money to do it with. Let's just throw it at the screen and see what sticks. And I did think that the first movie was, was the most enjoyable. I've always thought that if you took the three movies and spliced them together, which I hear has been done, uh, you can put most of the book in there uh, and make a decent movie out of it. I did think the others went too far. I did not like at all the addition of the elf character. When I saw that and heard about that, I thought, why? You know, there, you don't have enough good characters to choose from. Yes, you want young ladies to come. Yes, we know they can shoot bows and arrows. They've got their other movies for that. You could have left this one alone. Um, but it just, yeah, the, the the fight scenes that went on too long, the, uh, what was it, the white, um, the white orc? Um, oh gosh, was, that, that that was too much. That of, was uh, it wasn't lost. necessary. That was at the, all. That was the Jar Jar Binks moment for me. I thought, you yeah. know, you lost me with this. I own the movies. Uh, <laughs> I, I I get more enjoyment out of watching them now when I distance myself from the Hobbit. I say, okay, let's just see this as a movie. And doing it that way, they work at a certain level. 
and there are enough fun elements to me. And you were just talking to someone, uh, Jared was talking about uh, Gollum. To me, the most brilliant part of the Hobbit trilogy was the Riddle in the Dark scene. That I didn't feel could be done any better by anybody. I just thought it played out brilliantly. Um, to me, it read and played on the screen like it did in the book. And uh, that was very satisfying, actually, to see that, that part on film. Yeah, the moment of compassion too was handled well, where he doesn't, you know, they make they make a big deal about his moment of compassion of Bilbo not kind of, you know, in the story he leaves yeah. him, but it's like he has that moment he could knife him, and the way they handle right. it in the in the movie, he, you know, was you're absolutely right. That was the best part of the movie, and yeah. they left it as a um, as Which a centerpiece. Be, that's one of the strongest parts of the Lord of the Rings too, is that uh, Gandalf being the wise wizard, sees the need for a golem. You know, Frodo wants to get rid of him. Why do we want to have him hanging around? He's just holding us back. Well, you may find he has a purpose, which rings so true with our Christian principles. Everyone has a purpose, and God intends some things for good and some things for evil. I think Tolkien did that very well with his whole um, um, worldview. Uh, writing that into the story in very powerful ways uh, makes a good point that everybody does have a purpose. Evil does. We don't like it. We don't like the coronavirus. What I'm hearing, <laughs> you know, it's it, it, it. But it's got its purpose, and it works out. Tolkien works everything out. Uh, of course, there are about a thousand other books now to support and backstory. But um, I did think the strongest part of The Hobbit was that scene, which played well against what we learn of Gollum through The Lord of the Rings and the way we see him characterized. Very strong character. Yeah, it probably is. I think, Nathan, you made a good point. I think it was you or Jared. That said, you know, maybe somewhat a stronger character in the movies than in the book, but it carries the themes. It helps carry the themes of the story so well. So those were some of my thoughts on uh, wrapping in The Hobbit with this discussion. Um, one thing I thought you, you asked about a scene earlier, I think more could have been made out of the mushrooms. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm looking at the chapter now, uh, I brought my book with me, The Shortcut to Mushrooms. And they have a little bit of fun with that, but in the movie, they don't really bring out how much that is to the Hobbit culture, to the Hobbit uh, food feeding. Uh, one of my uh, scariest memories from college, my wife and I still talk about it, that's where we met. And, I uh, just saw her wander through here a moment ago, um, Messiah College. Uh, one, I want to say it was, a, it was either a Friday or a Sunday night dinner. They decided to do a Hobbit meal. Everything had mushrooms. So that probably is why I gel and jump back to this. I came across this chapter reading a couple of weeks ago. I thought, oh, that awful. That was the only thing <laughs> I had to leave school for because neither of us were, at the time were big mushroom fans. We tolerated them a lot better now. But I did think there were certain little elements like that that would have been fun to bring into the Hobbit's lives and life story. Uh, they hit on it a little bit. Uh, of course, the second breakfast thing is fun. I just saw that pop up in uh, probably a meme or something the other day again. I hadn't seen one of those in a while. I thought, oh, wow, okay. So, <laughs> so everybody listening to these go to 11 now and bringing this in. But uh, so those are some of the things. Yeah, I, I think uh, certain elements could have – the Hobbits are such great little characters. Well, no pun intended. Uh, such great characters they could have had even more fun with them. I mean, you get a good sense of that. Merry and Pippin are the, the, the fun-loving ones of the bunch. Uh, Frodo and Sam are played out to be the much more serious. Um, 
you know, by the end of it, well, it's, anyway, th those are one of the things that come to mind. The Hobbit characters could have even been uh, a little stronger. But anyway, for a look at, uh, I think Kyle made the, you know, Hobbit was a Hobbit. Uh, Hobbiton was Hobbiton when you see that first scene in the movie and it's all green and you got the round door. It's like, wow, they hit, they hit a home run there. So, but yeah, there, a lot of it is just a little thing. To cover 1,500 pages over 12 hours of movies, even with all you have, is hard to do. And uh, the bottom line is we wouldn't be here talking about it if we didn't uh, enjoy it immensely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and I liked what you said about, you know, the worldview because it is easy um, with with the books and the movies. Um, you, see, you see his worldview come out uh, a little bit, but I know – you know, read so much about Tolkien. And I mean, uh, I think we talked about it on the podcast last week, you know, he, he absolutely despised allegory. Um, yeah. He could not stand C.S. Lewis's works. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, he, he was trying to distance himself and just tell uh, a, a mythologist, just tell this, this ancient history of, of Europe and, and see where it went. But, but as you start to read the Silmarillion, you see more, how his worldview plays out. You know, you have, you have the great creator who comes in and, and, and creates these, these lesser beings that also have the power to create, but he is still, Iluvatar is still the, the power overall. Um, and he still has a plan and a purpose, even, um, even with Melkor, the, you know, the dissenting angel, um, you know, he can see all ends. And so you get more of that sense of, you know, that, that, that destiny, that purpose, that there is an overarching control. And I thought, um, you know, and obviously that those things were going to play into his life. Even, even as he's writing um, the Lord of the Rings, he had this image because, you know, you study him and you see he, he had been writing, you know, parts of the Silmarillion throughout. And, um, and so you see that he had this view of, you know, that there's, that there is a power overall that is guiding and there is a purpose. And you get that from Gandalf a little bit, that while there are forces that are working for evil, there are also forces that are working for good. Um, and so, you know, he, it's just interesting from that, from that perspective that, you know, writers are going to write about what they know. And so as much as he wanted to, uh, you know, write this, this kind of original, and I think, I've been reading some of his personal letters as well. You know, you see that, that his goal was just not to write a word for word allegory, but we see the truth, um, you know, from the Christian perspective of, you know, uh, God overall. And so, you know, that truth came out in the story that he wrote um, because he was writing about things that he knew, you know, he's a very devout um, Catholic man actually led Lewis to Christ um, one of his uh, most brilliant arguments um, that that swayed Lewis, I absolutely love it, is you know the the, the mythology, um, the, the truth in mythology, and you know talking about how uh, you know if you if you look at all the great myths in history, you know they all have one thing in common, and that is uh, that is God coming to Earth in some form to influence human life, and in his persuasive argument with Lewis was Christ was the true myth. Um, he's the one that we see 
God coming into earth as man saving humanity. And, and that really stuck with Lewis for a number of years. And, and you can see how, how his arguments actually influenced Lewis's writings in his theology, um, which is, which is interesting. And so one of the things that I really take away from this is not just the impact that he's had um, in terms of, you know, his writings and his writing in his fantasy, but you think of all that Lewis has done for the Christian community in his writings and his theology and influencing it. Um, you know, and I've, I've heard it said before. Um, and, and I think it's true that when, when Lewis is on, he's on. And when he's off, he's really off. Um, you know, he, uh, he, he's off in some things. And, but when you, when you read things like mere Christianity, um, or God in the dock, uh, some of, some of those writings and you see, man, this is somebody who is influenced by, by J.R. Tolkien and his thought process. It just, it goes to show, the level of, of thinking and creativity he actually had um, when, when influencing Lewis in real life. And so that's one of the things that I really appreciate about, about everything that he, that he did was it just, it, it so saturated his belief system and who he was so saturated him that it, it does come out in all of his writings. And so you have these very powerful themes of good and evil and good conquering over evil. And, and the reality too, that even though you're doing something good, you're not going to be saved completely from the evil. You know, Frodo, uh, he went on this journey and, and he was doing this good thing to destroy the ring, but it ended up consuming him. Um, and, and he lost part of himself, both uh, physically and spiritually and this journey. And so, you know, Tolkien's realism in that is, um, is just fantastic that he doesn't shy away from the honest truth that it doesn't get tied up all nice and neat and pretty at the end, that there is still a mess. Um, you know, so that was, uh, one of the things that I appreciate you saying there, Chip, and bringing up. I love that, uh, C.S. Lewis quote, the, the world doesn't need more good Christian literature. It needs more Christians writing good literature. And I, I think that's why like Tolkien hit and C.S. Lewis both hit home is that they didn't just write good Christian literature. It was just good literature. Like it was just good. And that's why it resonates with so many people for, for so many years and everything, um, even outside of Christianity. Yeah, I think that that's that's a thing that can't kind of be understated too. Is that sometimes when you try to write like a good, it doesn't have to be Christian, but you want to write this thing, and we're going to follow a template. And I think we can forget that Tolkien and Lewis, you know, they both were scholars, and they were coming. Not that you have to be a scholar to do this, but this was the passion. This was a great uh, desire. Whether you prefer one, I I prefer Tolkien's story to Lewis's stories. But the, the difference, too, is that Lewis is very specifically writing children's stories with, with the Narnia books and not necessarily with everything he did. But, I mean, he is clearly writing them to a kid's audience as a, as a you know, telling a, a bedtime story. Tolkien does take a sort of different approach. So the kinds of allegory that Lewis uses are a little more appropriate when you are telling that kind of story. I Do I have issues with them? I, 
I have issues the further the series goes than I do initially because you do a lot of, of, of Lewis's weird ideas start to come in and it's weird theological ideas enter in later in some of the books. But I feel like early on the first three books or though, you know, those are very good and very strong children's stories. Uh, not that they can be enjoyed by somebody else, but I mean, again, the, the, it's hard to compare the two and wonder why one level of detail and one level of nuance doesn't exist in the other. But the thing is, you know, again, what we see today a lot of times is people trying to write within a template, you know, and that can be done. Um, Kyle, I think you mentioned the, uh, the wheel of time series, which is a really good fantasy series. Uh, but it is almost entirely playing in a world that is very much like Tolkien's. There's not, there's not really a lot of new thoughts in that Robert Jordan series. It's definitely worth reading. And that's a good example of doing something very well. Um, and, and kind of taking some notes from Tolkien and adding a few of your own things. But yes, I, I find that whether it's Christian fiction or we want to write fantasy fiction, it's a lot of times it's falling back on something. And again, they were just trying to tell good stories. They were trying to tell stories that resonated to them, that spoke to their experiences, that encouraged them and it ended up encouraging other people and, and speaking to, you know, uh, the experiences of others and, and forming kind of that. And, one thing I'm interested in um, is whether or not – so whether it be book or movie, favorite character, everybody's favorite character, and why. <laughs> I sound like I'm like a fourth-grade teacher or something now. But, um, well, I'm fifth grade, so I know the question. There you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I'll start. Uh, for me, it was Legolas. I don't know what it was, like the just the cool, like the long hair, the he could crush it with the bow and arrow. Me and my buddies all shot compound bows. He was just he had like the skateboard thing where he's like riding the shield down the stairs and shooting arrows. Like Legolas. I mean, maybe it was just the age. Maybe looking back again and watching the movies again, I'd find somebody else I appreciated more. But definitely when the movies first came out, um, it was it was Legolas. Uh, yeah, there were people, there were characters I loved in the books that in the movies that just annoyed me, but Legolas in both of them was just—he's awesome, <laughs> man crush. Could I have more than one? Sure. Okay. Um, so I'm going to tie back into like what the last topic of conversation was too. Um, I say first is Sam. You can see a lot. Of, he's the encourager, and you can see a lot of I think Christ in his character, and it was some intentional. Um, then obviously you have Gandalf the the gray slash white. You also see you know the resurrection. You also see him knowing a lot of stuff. And then as like Kyle was saying, Aragorn because again and I've read this somewhere. I think I also have like some book that kind of explains. This from a Christian worldview type of book, you know, um, that uh, when you see uh, Aragorn at first, he's kind of, you know, he's the second Adam of his generation. He's like, I'm, I don't want to be my dad, but I really don't know where I'm going yet. So, yes, it's a bit flawed theologically, but you do see all about that. that I think they, the, the mission of Jesus and him to be like, okay, I'm going to set things right and become the king. So, and plus, he's just, you know, again, the born leader on the battlefield. So that's my theory. And like I said, I, I don't know if, you know, if you can see that or not, but I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts about that. That's what I was talking about when I was listening to the podcast last week. 
Yeah, I'd go with um, Sam Damsey would probably be my favorite. He's the kind of friend you want. He's the kind of friend you want to be. Um, he's there through obviously thick and thin, uh, never gives up, even when he's beaten down by his best friend, the one he's there to protect, says, you need to get out of here. You go, go home. Um, I haven't gotten back to that part in the book. I'm waiting to see how that plays out again. I don't have that memory, but I'm looking forward to getting there in a few weeks. <clears throat> but uh, I just think that's a, a great character brought to, brought to a great life by Sean Astin. Um, with a nice Baltimore connection, by the way, with his dad, who I think still Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he does, uh, yeah. I looked into that last week. He's still he yeah, the Early 90s. But, um, no, I just like the character Sam. And, of course, I... I got to love Frodo too for, for some similar reasons. Uh, he, he winds up being a faithful friend. Um, but I like the way he, even in the book, uh, and, and it's played out so well in the movie when he says, I will take the ring. Um, one of the things that impressed me going back to an earlier question was just how many of the lines from Lord of the Rings show up in the movie. They were so true to that. And I know in watching uh, Kyle mentioned the, um, the extras that you get, we've watched all of the first ones. Um, and they really tried to grab that heart. But uh, Frodo not wanting to do this thing, but picking it up and, and doing it. And, you know, he gets the many wise words from Gandalf, you know, not, not all of us get, you know, we don't choose the time we live in. Um, none of us really want to do all of this, but this is a necessary thing that you're going to need to do to save the world. <laughs> uh, but he takes it on and... Um, there's a lot of Christ-likeness in that as well. You know, Father, be your will, take this from me. Frodo essentially says that many times through the book, um, but he knows he's got to hang on to that, just uh, like Christ did. I appreciated Jared's thoughts on that. There are a lot of little uh, Christ-like figureness that play into the various characters, but those would be my two favorite. They're the two heroes of the story anyway, so why not? But both are so well, uh, well written, very real life. Uh, each struggling with things we all go through in friendship and in life. Um, you know, I, I couldn't, I almost wept when I got to the part of the Fellowship of the Ring because it's where we are now. You know, we don't want this pandemic upon us. It's only God's grace that's going to get us through it. So we have, there's nowhere else we can look. And for Frodo, there's nowhere else he can look but getting that ring to the fire. And he almost fails at the end but has some unexpected help from the one who didn't want to be a part of the story anymore long ago, but there it is. So, uh, you know, everything just plays out so, so beautifully and so well, but you can almost pick a character and find a whole lot to like about him. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I, um, I actually, I'm going to throw out three of them, um, you know, cause I'm one of the hosts on here, so I can do that. Um, so, uh, the first one I'm going to throw out is, is Tom Bombadil because his character is just so, it's so fun. And it's so, um, when you read his scene in there from, you know, him helping Frodo and the others and who he is, and then you get a little bit more of an exposition about him at the council it, it is just such a really great character. He is, he's above all the evil, but he can't do anything with it, mm-hmm. you know? And they make that very clear that, you know, he's a character. Why don't we, and, and they try to do that. Why don't we just give him the ring? Well, first of all, I don't think he would take it and there's no way we could force him to take it. Um, he's, he's a creature that is, um, 
you know, from, from days of old, you know, their best guess is from the creation of time. um, If not coming out with time itself. And he's just, he's not interested in these matters. And, And I find characters like that so fascinating because he's not, it's not that he's disinterested because he, he doesn't care. He's just disinterested because he, he can't grasp the ideas of, of this, this fight between good and evil. He, he can't grasp the stakes that are involved. He's so beyond all of those things that it, it has no effect and no play on him. And so his character. You can't bend him to your will if he wanted to. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's kind of like what Lewis says. Well, he's not a tame lion. Right. Exactly. And so that that portrayal and that character, but but he's fascinating too because he's again he's a character that's unaffected by it, but he's also a character that really can't do anything with it. He can't really. It, it's not that he doesn't want to. It's it's he actually can't do anything to help them. He has no ability. Um, in and of himself to do anything that can affect the whole of this scenario in Middle Earth. He has, he has just enough good in him um, and power in him to, to be unto himself. And so that just, that kind of fascinates me with that character uh, that, that he can resist the power of the ring. He can in some ways overcome the power of the ring, but he's so disinterested in power. He's so disinterested in what the ring holds you know, the comments made that he would probably put it somewhere and lose it. Um, and then it, we'd be right back in the same situation. Um, and so that, that character fascinates me and I enjoy him for that reason. Uh, the other one, uh, Aragorn is, um, you know, again, he is, he was just written so well, his struggle in his development and his arc and where he comes from. And when, when you go back and you read the history in the Silmarillion and everything, what his lineage dealt with and, and who he comes from, you, you begin to understand even more that struggle and why he's as reluctant as he is to take on this mantle of leadership and, and to really to rise, which, which makes when he finally becomes king so much uh, sweeter and so much better. Um, and then actually the other character I really like is uh, Faramir, Boromir's brother. And, and I'm going to say I prefer the book version um, because for another reason, this version is the, the opposite of his brother. We get a little bit of a different version in the movie and we'll, we'll kind of talk about that later. But the book version, he, he immediately understands what's at stake and has no desire to take hold of the ring and do anything with it. Um, and so uh, be interested to do this again, when you guys read the second book and you see how his character unfolds and develops, but, but Faramir is, um, is my third favorite character in there because of um, he, he's a strong character in some ways he, we get him um, on the outset as being strong where we see Aragorn growing into his strength. Um, and so he, his character as well is just really well done. And we see, you know, these characters who understand the say other than Tom Bombadil, we see Aragorn and Faramir who just really understand what's at play here. And they want to see, you know, this thing followed through to the end and whether they succeed or not, they're going to be out there fighting on the front lines, um, to try to get it to happen. 
So Nathan, uh, your characters, and then we'll jump back to Jared's uh, thoughts about um, kind of some of those Christ characters that we see in there. Sure. And I guess if we're talking, you know, mostly the, the fellowship and it, it is, it does differ based on the movies and the books, because in the book, I'm going to, I'm going to go with a chip and say that my favorite character was Samwise. And for many of the reasons that you already stated again, that, you know, he is the kind of friend you'd want. He's the friend you'd want to be. And then there's also that element that, in a you know, in a way, as you go through the book, you kind of start to realize more and more that he is a very central figure, and he's almost as central as Frodo. And then, and and he's while he's not blameless or faultless or flawless, uh, he's the one who you know Frodo does carry the ring with the desire to destroy it. But you also get that feeling in the book and the and in the film that part of it is also that he agrees to it not out of selfless reasons, but because the ring is compelling him. You know, whereas Samwise essentially goes. You know, the dual reasons being he's going there because of his friendship and his care for Frodo. And Gandalf told him to. He gave him a mission and he has that kind of simplicity or nobility to say, you know, I'm not supposed to lose you and I won't. And turn me into anything. You know, the way you see that. Right. But to see him carry that through and he, it seems like his, he's, he's, He's moving forward in 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 very straightforward emotions and and uh, actions. And when everyone else is getting you know caught up, even when he has his moments that where the, where the ring offers the opportunity for temptation, it's the simplicity of what's driving him through that allows him to sort of undercut it. You know, it's not there's not a lot of complexity. It's yes, I'm being tempted, but I'm going to do this other thing at the same exact time. Frodo's got some of that, but. I think that that's what makes Sam such an interesting character. And when you kind of bring it back, that is one thing that you kind of get when you reintroduce the scouring of the Shire at the very end of the books is you see both Frodo and Sam come back and have to do something. Uh, I mean, the truth is we've seen them do something for an entire three books. We didn't need to see them come home and clean up the home turf, but it's interesting in the way they do it, I, which is juxtaposed against in the movie, that kind of weird moment. And I, you know, I'm assuming that everyone's kind of read these books. So I mean, going to the end but you know you've got that moment that's juxtaposed where and my son brought this out he's like they were just standing in front they were standing in uh minas tirith and everybody was bowing at them and now now they are being ignored for a pumpkin you know like when they're back in an hobbiton they're back where that you know they've traveled back they just had the king and everyone bowing to them and now they're you know somebody's got a pumpkin over here in the corner and nobody's paying attention to them anymore you know the hero is not appreciated in his own his own time and place but so that character and of course gandalf is such a great character in the in the books i actually in the book and and I don't think you have to be the noblest character, the best character, or the kindest character or strongest character to be the, the most interesting character. I think that Boromir, as written in the books, is a really strong character, too, um, because you do have a lot you, – you see a lot more of what forms him and what forms his opinions. And it isn't all daddy issues the way it sort of ends up being in the – not that you know that as much in the first book, but, but you have the, the shadow of his father over their father of both Faramir and Boromir figure heavily into the movies. Not, and it's less of a thing. It's more, it's more his hang up than theirs. It's more Denethor's issue than theirs when you get into what happens in the later uh, chapters. But 
the way that Boromir is portrayed and the and the level of where he has to deal with the fallout of making the mistake, right? Because in a lot of ways, he's the one who falls to the ring, except for Frodo. And then Frodo falls right at the very end, right? You know, and again, as Chip pointed out, he has the, you know, Providence shows up in the in a in a form to save him. But, you know, there's that moment where it's like, oh look, Boromir, he couldn't resist the ring. If Frodo finds himself in the exact same place, you know, just later on. But to have that moment where what do you do when you mess up to that degree and seeing him kind of come back and have that really strong moment. And so I, but I, I liked what Sean Bean did with him in the movie and everything. And I think it was good, but I do think it lost a little bit of the nuance that made him such a strong character because you, it's not as foreshadowed. I don't think in the book, going back and reading it, it's like, okay, there's a very, very strong sense of foreshadowing in the movie that yes, Boromir is going to, you know, he's going to crack and you kind of get that, but He's a different character. He there's more of that Viking essence in him. You know, he has that kind of like a character pulled out of Beowulf or something that, uh, and then then you see the weakness. And so I thought the way he was handled in the books is, is was better. Going if if I'm talking the movies again, it was a genius. The casting was genius all around. Casting uh, uh, Rudy as Samwise was <laughs> was such an awesome choice, and I really think he kind of knocked that out of the park. If you get into, as we get into Two Towers and things like that, for me, a character I also really loved on the page, but I don't think was handled nearly as strong in the movie, was Eowyn, uh, when you get to the Two Towers. Uh, conversely, while I thought Theoden was a good character in the books, I thought that Bernard Hill, and the way they wrote him in the movies, was really good. Uh, I thought, when, once you get beyond the possession by Saruman, I didn't necessarily need all that. But when he comes to his senses, and particularly in The Return of the King, uh, I thought the way he handled that character, this character who wants to protect his people, but there's this bitterness of, look, you know, uh, they didn't come to our aid, we're not going to go to theirs, and how that whole thing comes. I think that's largely down, you know, it's to the writing, but also to the acting that to Bernard Hill. There's a, s- a specific scene when the Nazgul is flying in on the battlefield in Return of the King, and he he turns and he looks, and it's essentially his his last big moment on the screen. There's just the sigh and the resignation that comes into his face when he knows where it's headed and what's going to happen. And it's just like it's the it's the most impressive sigh I've ever seen in a movie. I think so. Uh, there are great characters all through, but those are some you know if you're looking book and movie. Nice. Nice. And so now I want to jump back um, because Jared, you brought up, you know, the, the, you know, Christ images that we see um, throughout the story. And so I do want to touch on that because there, there are, there's so many um, articles and books and stories written about, um, about these characters and, and the things that they build. And so I want to go ahead, Chip, I'm going to start with you. Um, let you kind of jump in and, you know, talk about these moments that you see in there and in some of the characters. Uh, well, I mentioned Sam and Frodo. Um, Frodo essentially uh, is willing to sacrifice everything. Each, each of the hobbits, all of them have to leave their homelands. And that's a big sacrifice. And I'm sure that plays into the war theme as well. Um, just as Christ had to come to earth. Uh, you could argue that that's one of the, the Christ characters. We lost Kyle, I guess. Sorry about that. No, you're fine. No worries. Another junk call. Got to get rid of that house line. That's all it gets anymore. 
they're um, about the same, yeah. But let's see. Um, yeah, Aragorn, noble, uh, the one who uh, the last book centers on, The Return of the King. Um, again, very Christ-like figure. Uh, I think Jared, uh, Jared did a good job at referring to him as the second Adam uh, for his race. You know, he comes back uh, years after his father um, with, a, with a specific purpose from on high, uh, something he needs to accomplish in his life. He needs to, um, he's the one that really holds the fellowship together, I think, in the end, at the end of the day. Um, and he just, you know, wanders in in that great scene in the movie, uh, Under the Hood, which we've talked about. Um, but just trying to uh, rally his troops. You could look at him, I look at him amongst the fellowship as uh, being the one holding the disciples together. So you can look at different characters and, and thinking through it this way, which I really hadn't done. It's a very good question. You can find elements of that through most of the characters, um, which is why God gave himself to us as a human. He wants to see our character through him. So through these guys, we get to see a little bit of those elements through each of them. Um, you know, Gimli, a, a great protector, um, you know, just wants to battle and, and keep everything at bay and a uh, real quick uh, trigger finger or uh, ax finger, <laughs> uh, as, as it were. Um, yeah, so we just go around. I want to hear some of Jared's thoughts on that too, but those are some of the ones that just come to my mind and thinking through it. Uh, with that with that kind of view. Um, I think you can make a case for each of them have various elements or gifts, depending on how far you want to push that. But they are, you know, Tolkien wrote them very well, and as much as he didn't want it to be an allegory, sorry, J.R.R., <laughs> it worked. You were so uh, enmeshed with the gospel that it came through. So... Jared, do you have any other thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I didn't consider it dimly at first, but I can definitely see that now. But uh, I, even like I think even when you see Sam, Sam as the ultimate encourager, you see him going, yeah. "Mr. Frodo, I will not let you fail. I'm, I'm, we will, we'll get through this." I'm like that. That's a picture of how Christ is the, the individual Christian when he's going through trial, or you know, when we're going through a tough time. Like he's our advocate, and that's what Sam represented. Um, I think the the main one that has come to mind, especially like in the movies, is Gandalf the Grey when he turns into Gandalf the White. After you know, he dies in Fellowship of the Ring. Sorry, spoilers for those listening, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but um, uh, you know, you see him again in Two Towers. All of a sudden, unexpectedly, he's in this white royal robe, and you know, he's taking the throne as it were as the you know the next high wizard. It's like. Well, that brings back the, uh, you know, uh, stirrings of the second coming almost. So that's what I was like, hmm. And I've always gotten just so super emotional in that scene. And then finally, I think for me, it's Aragorn, especially at the end of Two Towers when he goes, my friends, like, you know, you bow to no one. And they all, they all bow to the uh, fellowship. It's like, well, that's, that's kind of represent, a representative of, you know, Christians, like when we're in heaven, almost it seems like, you know, like that we are now, you know, we are friends of Christ. We are part of that family. And now like, you know, we, 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 you know, 
and the angels and something like else says, like that special people that Christ has purchased on the cross. So those are just stuff I saw. Good. Nice. Yeah. And when I, you know, when I look at that, one of the things that I think um, he did well, because this was, you know, uh, Tolkien really did want to write a book that, um, it took place in a time before we saw Christianity. You know, there were obviously, um, there were obviously gods running around in his world, in his universe. Um, and, and we see, you know, we see some of the lesser gods in the movies, you know, with uh, Sauron, Saruman, Gandalf, you know, these are some of the lesser gods that, that have been created in this world. One of the things that I thought he did so well, though, in, in achieving his goal of, of creating this world that kind of predates some of those things is that there is no, there is no perfect one-to-one ratio for Christ in here. We mm-hmm. see images, but they're flawed images, you know, and, and that's kind of, um, that's kind of looking at the old Testament. You know, we, we see all of these, you know, prophets who, who came before, you know, who, who represented, you know, uh, an aspect of Christ, you know, uh, we see David in the old Testament as the great ruler, you know, and, and Christ will come as the one true perfect ruler. Um, you know, and you see, you see Aragorn as, as kind of fulfilling that role where, you know, he's coming to be, to be the king that will, will mm-hmm. set up a, a kingdom. But we also, we know his flaws and we see his flaws, you know, uh, even, even with Gandalf, you know, we see, um, we see him as a flawed individual. He doesn't retain the perfection and the confidence um, that we see in the true um, the true King, you know, the Jesus Christ. And so to me, that was kind of one of the things that I thought he did so well in, in showing a world that, that really wasn't centered around Christianity was showing us examples of, of these, these figures, these characters that, that have a lot of similarities, a lot of these characteristics, but, they, but they're not quite there we still do see the humanity in them because um, you know, I, I know for me, when I look at Christ, I can never live up. I can never, you know, that's, th- that's the benchmark. That's where I'm supposed to be, but I can't do it. Um, but when I look at someone like Aragorn, I see, man, here's somebody who I can relate to because I, I can relate to his flaws. I can relate to the person that um, he struggles to be Um and so for me, seeing all of these glimpses and images, um, really it, it pulls in, you know, what Tolkien was trying to do. And so I appreciate that about, about his characters. We do, we see these, you know, these Christ-like characters, which we saw in the Old Testament too. We saw all these Christ-like characters, but they always fell short. There was never one that rose up to it. And that was kind of the point of it all was, you know, and, and that fits into what he, you know, how he wrote and what he wanted to write was, you know, uh, you know, this, this story that just encompasses um, a telling of this history, um, you know, and it, it is fascinating when we, when we read Lord of the Rings, it does almost read more like a history book. And then you get to the Silmarillion and it's just flat out a history book, <laughs> Um but that's what I appreciate is there, there are, we can, we can look at all these characters and we can draw these parallels of Christ and see, man, 
yeah, th- this is where they are here and this is where they are here and this is where they are here, but they never quite measure up. It's, it's almost like they're still waiting for the perfect being and the perfect creature and, uh, to come and, and be that perfect ruler and leader. And so that's one of the things that um, I thought he did a great job with doing is just doing, you know, okay, we're going to write a story that's outside of this thing we call Christianity. And so here's, here's what we're going to do. And and because of who he was, you're right, Chip, he couldn't get away from it. Uh, yeah. But, but that is, but that is the essence of good storytelling, isn't it? Just it's, it's writing, writing the truths that we see. And that's, that's the great thing about the gospel is the gospel looks at, you know, this is the state of, of the world. It is, it is an evil world that we live in. Um, But we see moments of redemption coming throughout of it, ultimately culminating in the great moment of redemption in Christ. And so, you know, telling the story of, of evil and, and being tempted by evil. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Nathan with, with Boromir, his, his arc of, you know, he was a good man trying to do a good thing. He fell short, but then, but then he was redeemed at the end. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, Tolkien's not afraid to explore all of these aspects of what we see in reality. Um, so Nathan, you're going to say yeah, something there? And I there? think one of the things that's nuanced that, and again, like we were saying, I don't think that he was setting out to, and he's kind of clear about that. And mm-hmm. I don't think he was even trying to do it stealthily. I don't think he was setting out at all to write a Christian story. Uh, but again, it's what his experiences were and how he processed the things that happened. And it's important that these characters aren't, that there isn't one that is exactly Christ-like because it would it would sort of imbalance everything, right? You know, that some of the most interesting parts with even these powerful characters like Gandalf is even once he's Gandalf the White, like probably one of the most interesting to me parts of the book is the moment when he's at Minas Tirith and the Witch King of Angor shows up and it's the moment when his staff is broken and it's a moment they add into the extended editions, but even in the film it's just, it's just one more thing that happens. But, you know, uh, he's sort of overwhelmed and he kind of knows he is going up there. He He's um, pretty much aware that it's not a clear given that he's going to win this or that anybody is going to win anything at this point in time. And then, of course, when it's broken, uh, the Witch King is all upon him at that point, And that's when the cock crows and that's when the light, you know, the day comes and mm-hmm. casts him off that way. And I think that that elements like that all through it's a reminder that you know we don't have a all-powerful character but there's always some sort of providence that comes in uh and that's where you know in in that sense it's not like tolkien's hiding god because he leaves open the fact that he does exist he's not mentioned by name but he exists and he he regularly shows up as in that scene you know it isn't it isn't always gandalf coming to the rescue at some point somebody has to come to gandalf's rescue and that's sort of there's never a point where that's not the case something too i think is really interesting is because and if you look at a lot of the fantasy stories it's always good versus evil it's good versus evil here but i think the kind of where you know what ship's saying is like i don't think tolkien was writing allegory because if you get allegorical or his allegory would break down is how do i how do i create christ in here without diminishing Christ somehow, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's why he has an issue with the kind of lion. It's like, well, how do you get it where it's either kind of not right or it's diminished a little bit or it's too simple. But to me, one of the things that comes in is 
they don't these characters aren't always making choices between good and evil there's good and evil but a lot of times it's also the nuance of wisdom versus folly you know it's things that which when you look at maybe something through more like a christian worldview, you start to look at that like you know some people are always asking was well, a good thing or a bad thing and you know i talked recently with my kids and it's like oh well what about a wise thing versus a foolish thing you know we don't always think in those terms and yet wisdom versus foolishness and what appears foolish that sometimes turns out to be wise you know there's a lot of that in these books particularly the first book where there are characters that are doing things that look very foolish and yet they aren't and samwise at certain times could be seen as being foolish when he sometimes sees clearly through everything else that's going on and so when you have characters making those sorts of choices i think that always is going to make a book more interesting you know uh what's wisdom to boromir and the usage of the ring is really folly ultimately right and his fall is less about him being evil or choosing a good and evil but but failing to be wise in the face of a situation that that could clearly overpower him, you know. There's a lot of elements of pridefulness. Uh, you see that Denethor and 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 the the foolishness or the folly of these powerful characters allowing themselves to be manipulated by the Palantirs, you know, uh, touching into something that they know is dangerous, but hey, I can control this and I'm beyond, you know. It, so I think that's one of the things that's really interesting because you don't see that in a lot of uh, fantasy fiction usually often is. And not that there isn't good versus evil here, but there are so many other pieces of play that come into play in how the story rolls out that I just never thought about them before. It's like, oh, you know, there's a lot about is this wise? Is it not wise? And, you know, and even Gandalf. I kind of like Gandalf better when he's Gandalf the Grey because he's so grumpy and so kind of free <laughs> that, that frailty, not the frailty, but the humanness of him uh, early on. You can real and, 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 and uh, McKellen, I think, is a little more interesting as Gandalf the Grey because you can <clears throat> see the weariness a little more in his eyes and everything. I think. Um, and you get a good bit of that in the extended edition of the of the of the last Lord of the Rings when Gandalf has thought that he sent Frodo to his death. You know, I think McKellen handles all that stuff well. But seeing him uh, again in the in the Fellowship as a as a as a someone who's really kind of tired, he's frail, he's not sure if he's going to be up to this, and uh, which kind of is it's juxtaposed against those moments when he faces the Balrog and you understand again what you're really dealing with. You know, he looks like an old grumpy guy in a hat up until he's facing this fire demon, you know, across this gorge. And so things like that, I, I think it is all through the books, but the, the, the thing I think that's maybe impressive is that it, the strength of Tolkien's faith was coming out through what he was writing. It wasn't, it was organically built into him in such a way that that was his worldview and for better or worse and the different ways in which that comes out and there. Yeah. You can find faults with everybody about these things, but I do think that even when due to kind of when Tolkien is writing and, and his own experiences with things and, 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 you know, people can point out, well, I, I don't know if he included this enough or included that enough. I still think that ultimately his books, even when there were flaws, they were still pointing to this idea of a of a common unity and a common, you know, for lack of a better term, of fellowship between everyone. And and that the only way really through peace is is through the you know through these mutual uh, experiences and this overarching this overarching design that includes everybody. And so. Yeah, the and and in the book it's much more clear when you see the the building uh, respect and relationship that builds between, say, uh, 
Gimli and Legolas is very different in the books. You know, it is something that is really uh, two people understanding each other through a different lens. It isn't just we bonded over killing, you know, uh, which is kind of kind of the movies sort of are almost come down to that moment. They get a lot of nice moments, but you're still sort of like, okay, you guys learned that you could kill people good. Yeah, no, those are, that's excellent. Well, we don't want to, uh, want to make sure that you guys uh, have had a chance to kind of talk and, and, you know, so want to just kind of throw it out there. Any, any other last minute thoughts or observations, Chip, Jared, anything else that you guys wanted to bring up and talk about? I did have, uh, go ahead, Jared, if you're ready. I I forgot to mention uh, about the, the misbred, what they used to feed themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, it kind of can be a reference to communion, although it's a Catholic idea of communion. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in mm-hmm. some certain reformed traditions, you know, it's also about like the presence of Christ being there with us. So mm-hmm. I, that was a reference I forgot to mention earlier. But yeah, that's my yeah, that mind. that bread being you know life sustaining and and yeah. again, you know, you get to uh, the Silmarillion and you read a little bit more about. I mean, this was this was made in a very um, specific way and it, it, it's uh, the, the ingredients and the recipe for Lembus was passed down and, and it is an ancient tradition and how it's, how it's made and even who it's given to. It's not really just given to anyone there. It's, you know, and so, yeah, that's, that's a great point, Jared. Hey, I was going to follow up on, um, oh, hopefully I've still got it. Well, Nathan's thought about uh, Christ. Um, I wonder, had there been one central Christ-like character, if the story would have been cheapened? Mm. Yeah, and I kind of think it might have been. I think there was a wisdom there to... Going back to what... And I wish Kyle had still been on. I was going to make a recommendation or a book for him. I'll throw it to you all. Um, But I kind of think that's where Christian art has lost so much of its potential impact. Mm. Um, When it becomes obvious... Non-Christians don't want to read it, but are you glorifying God by making it so obvious? You know, we've got his word to show us the glories of God, the glories of Christ mm-hmm. on every page. Um, we're not going to approach that in our writing, in our literature. Uh, do we necessarily need to try? No, it's been done. But taking the elements of that and breaking down, a beautiful story comes out. Um, every year for my fifth graders now for the fourth year running, I have read... Um, uh, I don't know if any of you have read it, The Wingfeather Saga, Andrew Peterson. Uh, it's written for his kids initially. He started writing about a dozen years ago, finished it about six or eight years ago, a series of four books. Um, and he makes no bones that his inspirations were um, Lord of the Rings, um, Narnia series, mm. Indiana Jones, Star Wars were his major elements that he, you know, rumbled around his head. His kids wanted him to tell a story. So kind of like what Tolkien did with the Hobbit just started in the holy ground that lived the Hobbit. But here we go. Uh, he's done the same thing, but this is more family oriented. It's a story of a family, the Wingfeather family. Um, it goes through four books. Uh, the total of those books is also similar to this. about 1500. And this is Andrew Peterson, the musician. It is indeed. Okay. Uh, he has long been one of my favorite uh, recording artists. Uh, his writing is just to me nonpareil, uh, and he does the, those things. He um, he's so steeped in his own reading. He reads all kinds of classics, Scottish literature, 
George McDonald. And um, so he's let those things, and of course, most importantly, the word influence his thinking and writing. I think you would all really enjoy it. It's at a different level than Lord of the Rings. It's for a different, it's, he, it's written for an eight to 15 year old audience, but I've got adults hooked on it. Mm. I got the greatest note I've ever gotten from a parent last Saturday um, because I read that to her daughters in my class. Uh, her daughter now loves to read. She wasn't a reader when she got to my class, but something sparked this year. And for her birthday, <laughs> the new versions of his Wing Feather Saga were just released. The first two volumes, the next two come out in September, but it's worth reading. Um, it's very Christian oriented, but it, it, it's not right like this. It's not obvious. Right. Um, but he makes very clear that the ruler of his universe, his world is the maker always referred to quite lovingly and respectfully as the maker who's guiding everything. Um, so it's a good read. He wrote a book last year, which I would have recommended to Kyle called Adorning the Dark. Um, very worthwhile for you to pick up and read. It goes along with what we were saying earlier. Yeah, what, Kyle, what Kyle's point was, you know, Christian writing from a Christian perspective, but giving glory to God. It's just taking your gift and using it for the glory of God. You don't have to be preachy about it. Tolkien is far from preachy, but we all get the larger themes that underlie a story because we know who he was now and have read his biographies and know about him with his Christian worldview. Peterson takes the same approach, but it's called adorning the dark and just how Christians need to do a much better job at um, being in the world, not of the world, being a part of the world and creating good literature, good songs, good uh, physical artwork. So really, really worth reading. I think you'd enjoy the wing feathers. Nathan, Nathan's, what, what are the ages of your kids? But I actually, while you were talking about a chip, I looked it up and uh, this looks perfect for my kids. Actually, um, my kids are six and eight. I've and read it now to, I'm sorry, I'll let you finish. I was going to say, my kids are six, eight. My eight year old has just really picked up reading. He, um, he's reading right now. A, a series called Fable Haven, which it, it's a good, it's not a, um, you know, it is from the Christian perspective, but it's a good fantasy mm-hmm. series. Uh, he's really enjoying it. It's, um, uh, I have Brandon, Brandon Mole, I believe is the, the author. And, but I'm looking at the Wingfeather saga and it looks like it's written about that same level, even maybe a little yeah. bit um, below. And we're just getting to where we're reading through classic fairy tales. I read them an adaptation of Beowulf the other night. So mm-hmm. there we're, we're building in all those baselines that a lot of these guys are using I in their this, stories. This, this would fit it right in for you. I can almost guarantee they'll love it. I've read it to a total of 45 or 50 kids now. Um, and I'm always leery as to who's going to latch on, but the way he writes it, there's small chapters. Four to oh yeah. I just read an excerpt of it while I was listening to you and talk and it looks like, uh, yeah. every chapter is a cliffhanger. It's amazing. But when I have to stop reading to get onto our real work, uh, <laughs> even, even sometimes even when we're headed to recess, Oh, can you read just one more? Uh, it just hooks them. Uh, I think because it's brothers and sisters interacting, fighting, bickering but part yeah. of the story it's just wonderful I, and the I, little I expert i read reminded me what more so than say um like uh tolkien or narnia it kind of had the feeling or the verve that came with something like um oh what is uh her um madeline Ingalls, the uh oh. the 
um, wrinkle in time, wrinkle in time, and the whisper through the door and stuff yeah. like that. D- different story, but I could get that kind of feel, that kind of whimsical. Here's a fantasy world, but what's operating underneath this fantasy world are these values and ideas exactly. and concepts, and I like that. Um, there was also uh, a series of books. Disney made one of them into a movie called The Black Cauldron. That was uh, the Book of Three. Oh, it was. Yeah. Um, why can't I think that Lloyd Alexander wrote them and it was a, now those were very much like you know, stream off of Tolkien, but this looks good. Okay. I I'm always looking for good. Uh, yeah. If you go young to adult um, authors, he has an organization that has his own site too, called the rabbit room. That's where he sells all this stuff. Uh, there are a whole yeah, I'm on that site now too. Gloria <laughs> kind of quick. Yeah. Gloria Trafton. Uh, there's one called Henry and the chalk dragon, which is a, uh, a book I haven't finished reading yet, but it's also good. Uh, there's a series called The Green Embers that's supposed to be very good. I've got a couple of them on my Kindle I haven't touched yet because you guys threw me this way. And then our pastor <laughs> talked about Fellowship of the Ring and his sermon. I thought, all right, we're on lockdown. I'm going to read through these guys. Nice. So anyway, recommendations. So, but um, Yeah, thank you. I, I appreciate you. All of you would enjoy them. Yeah, no, I'll definitely check them out. I mean, one of the series yeah. that I really liked um, when I was – when I was younger and I've, I've read them um, again recently, uh, not quite uh, level of Tolkien, but actually it's a little bit uh, better than Lewis in my opinion. And it's called the Chronicles of Anthropos written by John White. And it's more allegorical like C.S. Lewis, but he incorporates elements of trolls and goblins. Um, But, but it's interesting because it takes place in our world and the way they get through Anthropos is through these different mean, uh, means and mediums. Um, and so it's, it's, is that uh, the sword bearer? Like one of the books? Yes. The sword bearer, bearer, the tower of Gabora. uh, Who's the author? Uh, John White. Oh, John. Oh, okay. All right. Um, Chronicles of Anthropos is the series. There are six books in that series. They were like mid-80s, I want to yep. say, is when they kind of came oh, out. Okay. They, they were very much inspired by that, like, 80s fantasy. Mm-hmm. But they were – they. I remember enjoying them. Yeah. Yeah, and I've gone back um, as a adult. Oh, I'm sorry. What were we saying, Chip? I was going to say, one more note on the wing feather. There's a short 15-minute film they want to work uh, – that's available on Amazon. I think you just YouTube it. Um, it's a 15-minute cartoon. They're working on developing that into a series. Oh, wow. uh, nice. Your kids will enjoy watching that. Is that wing fe- That's also that's the wing feather. Wing, it's part of the wing feather saga. Trying to turn it into a uh, movie or a TV series. Um, this is the first 15 minutes that came out about a year and a half ago. Uh, it's been available just as a teaser to what they want to do, trying to raise money. Oh well, they have some you of the read-alongs on YouTube, by the way. Excuse me. There's the anime. They some of the read-alongs of the Wingfeather Saga are just, on YouTube, so that's pretty he, cool. He read both, the first two books. He just read. He started the week of the lockdown. And that's awesome. Every night I would, get on to read, and I want to go back and I, I watched the first few, and once school really geared up, re-geared, I just had to move away from it and watch other things. Yeah. But yeah, that, to hear him read it is amazing. Nice. I might do that. Cause I, my, I'll put like a uh, storytelling podcast or things like that on for the kids at night. They run about 30 to. minutes. Yeah. That's, and that's a perfect time. Yeah. I looked at them about 30, 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. I, I, last week I just realized, and unfortunately I realized that the day that it happened that, that Andy circus was actually reading 
uh, the Hobbit. The Hobbit. You know, yeah. he read the whole thing. Oh, he had, and and but the, by the time I found it and put it up on these go to eleven, he had just hit Riddles in the Dark, and I did manage to turn that on Friday. I think it was wow. last Friday morning for my kids. Oh, wow. And uh, he was just doing, which is, of course, for Andy Circus, that's the main reason to see him do it right, is the whole yeah. riddles in the dark. Right. He was having a lot of fun um, doing it. No, yeah, thanks for that recommendation. I look forward yeah. to that. Um, there was another series, too. A lot of them are older series. There were, And I can't, I'm trying to think of what the total series was, but it was, I think it was like The Dark is Rising. I don't know if you guys remember that one. Uh, there were three books, and it was the dark. The dark is rising, and there was uh, I think Greenwich was another of the books, and it was a series. Susan, I don't remember off the top of my head. A lot of these were made into subpar movies, and you know, post Lord of the Rings. So I think dark is the dark is rising was actually a movie, but nobody bothered to watch it because uh, um, because it just wasn't. Susan Cooper was the author. And she had The Dark is Rising, and uh, there's there's three or four of those books. And they're all pretty good, too. They do kind of have an underlying tone of, uh, you know, not, um, again, not allegory, but a certain element where you can see that there's a, there's a practical view of things that kind of come through uh, a spiritual worldview that kind of play, that comes into play. Mm-hmm. Um so I do look forward to reading those. Thanks, uh, thanks, Chip, for the recommendation. Yeah, Jared, I want to um, wanted to uh, hear from you. Um, you know, just uh, ask if you had any recommendations, and it doesn't necessarily have to be, um, you know, Christian fiction, but any any good, you know, fiction um, that comes to your mind um, of things that you've been kind of digging in on and reading, uh, or movies too. Yeah, yeah. whatever comes to mind. Well, I mean, right now when, while we've been on lockdown, I've also been going through the Harry Potter series again too. Because nice. obviously, what I've what I've heard now is well, I think you might have even said this on the podcast last week. That's why I've heard it. Is that uh, uh, what's her name? Rowling uh, was very much influenced by Tolkien mm-hmm. and off her writing, and you can clearly see that. Um, mm-hmm. So I've been reading that. Um, Mainly on the movie front, there's this new Netflix show that I think you guys should do at some point. If I haven't gone all the way through it yet, so I can't say what's really in there yet. But it's called Into the Night, and it's like it's it's this Belgian show on Netflix. Apparently, I guess like a solar flare happens. I, I guess like or solar event happens that kills a lot of people on Earth. How but do I not people, know about this? <laughs> but, they're, 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 but there's these people that are stuck on an airplane and they have to outrun it. And they just okay. are trying to figure out like what's going on and stuff. So I'm like, it's pretty interesting. So that's the two nice. things I got going on right now. Nice. Good deal. Good deal. Oh yeah. This look has a definite Stephen King kind of vibe to it. Hmm. Uh, I'm already looking at the yeah drama sci-fi series. <laughs> All right. You got me. I'm sold. Is it, <laughs> is it, it's foreign. Is this uh? let's see. It looks Oh, it's got it's got English. It's they Belgium, English. Belgium. Okay, cool. No, no, it, that's not a that's not a, a a negative for me. That's always a positive <laughs> <laughs> because it means it's probably a little different. You know, it's probably going to be a little. No, this. So this is on now. This is on Netflix right now. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, though, like the first episode, I didn't see it, but kind of give me the vibes of that Nicolas Cage up behind. You know, like, oh yeah, I remember. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> but it's good, though. It's, it's, you're like, okay, I can buy this. So I'm on, like, half of episode two right now. So, yep. 
Very yeah, cool. I'm I'm sold. That I all I had to do was see the the title and the premise. So yeah, I'm I will check that out. <laughs> That's awesome, guys. This has been great. Um, you know, we we're coming up on nine o'clock, so thank two you. hours here, and <laughs> really want to thank you guys for jumping in and joining us. Kyle had to jump off there, but uh, you know, had him on too. So um, this has been awesome, uh, Chip. I was telling uh, Jared and Nathan earlier. I'm not sure if I'm going to go ahead and take this and try to try to upload it as an episode or not. Um, Uh but I will, um, I'll kind of go through it once I listen to the audio and, and see how it sounds. We had a, you know, few more pauses in there. So, um, but Mm -hmm. this is, this has been great and we just wanted to do this, um, you know, for a listen. Probably try to do it again, maybe a little more regularly just to have inner, you know, connection with everybody. Absolutely. Yep. So the, uh, two towers. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I just hit the part today about uh, where Gandalf becomes Gandalf the White. Oh, I, nice. Just before this started, actually. <laughs> That's I, I thought I got to walk away from my computer for a while, shut down, read a book. I'm that looking forward to yeah, um, going back and reading this, particularly the tree beard parts, because that's when oh, you got to the movies. Right. I was, how are they going to possibly that was pull that of, off? That was one of the thoughts I had. And like, I think they nailed the it. They just yeah, like yeah. everything about that. It's like okay, you guys felt you couldn't do Tom Bombadil, but you could do this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Well, in case we do upload it, we'll sign off yeah. with the uh, customary guys. We just rocked the Casbah. These go to eleven.